0: Welcome back to the Applied Ballistics podcast. I'm Amanda Wheeler, your host. And in this episode, I'm joined by my coworker, AB engineer, and all-around good guy, Mitch Fitzpatrick. Thanks for joining me, Mitch.
1: Oh, not a problem. Glad to be back.
0: So tonight, we're super excited. We're welcoming um, a special guest, Francis Cologne. He's a PRS shooter and an AB friend. So, Francis, thanks for joining us tonight.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Great to talk to you both.
0: Yeah. So did you have a good fourth?
2: We did. Yeah, it felt like it came and went way too fast, but it it was a great weekend uh, with some friends and up north doing some grilling, doing some kayaking and canoeing, some fun times.
0: Yeah. Michigan had some good weather for that this weekend.
2: It was awesome this weekend for sure. I think we hit 90 something, but you know, when you're on a river, uh, 90 feels pretty good as soon as you touch the water. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And Mitch, I saw you were in Wisconsin. You were doing some camping.
2: Yep. Yep. Went camping for a couple days
1: uh, up to Door County, Wisconsin. That's like the the peninsula um, by Green Bay there. It's kind of, I guess I would compare it to like our uh, Traverse City, Charlevoix area here in, in Michigan. That's kind of like the Door County is to them. So that's pretty fun.
0: That's nice. And I did nothing. Well, I take that back. Uh, my girls and I, we went to Lake Michigan for a couple hours and sat in the sand for a little while, so that was good. Um, but otherwise, we didn't do much of anything. So um, let's get started. Um, Francis, we're uh, just excited to talk a little PRS with you tonight. Um, most the AB guys, were everybody's extreme long range, so PRS is a little a little different for us. So we're excited to... Yeah,
2: short by comparison, right? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Um, Even though I'm sure to the average person, you know, what we do isn't considered short at all, but uh, it definitely seems short compared to what Mitch and Brian and the rest of the team are doing.
0: Yeah. So tell me, um, how long have you been doing PRS shooting?
2: Uh, so my first, absolute first PRS-style match was... Uh, fall of 2018, uh, just before Thanksgiving out in Ohio at Rainer's Range. Um, and then my first full season was last season, uh, actually shooting, you know, PRS um, local club events and, uh, and national level events. So this is my officially my second season.
0: That, that's, that's amazing because you're doing really well um, and I've watched you shoot and it's impressive. So for it to be kind of new, that's that's impressive to me.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't I don't really think of it as as new as weird as it sounds. Just because I've been shooting for so long, um, but it does it did feel new when I first got into the to the actual sport of precision rifle um, in the way that we we shoot it uh, in competition. You know, there's a lot of moving components or moving aspects to the sport that once you once you understand you know how the game is played stage to stage and how you have to think through each stage, um it becomes a lot easier. but a lot of the challenge was simply just getting my head around distance elevation correction and windage once you get through those and those kind of feel second nature uh, then you can move on to the more advanced uh, you know aspects of getting better faster so
0: did you find that it was an easy sport to get
2: into or? Uh, Yeah, I guess I'm going to say yes and no. Um, You know, I think in luckily my background, um, I work in professional golf um, with a technology company that makes uh, radars effectively for golf balls so we can track a golf ball and tell you how far it went. So my mind, um, generally speaking, is working in trajectories and curves quite a bit on, on my day job and, you know, applying that to ballistics and how a bullet gets to its end target. Uh, you know, terminal destination is. It sort of became second nature, with a few you know little uh, sideways jaunts here and there. It makes a lot of sense to my brain, so for me it felt fairly easy. Um, but that's a relative term. I still had some challenges with, and I still you know still struggle with it. Trying to learn uh, wind in very windy environments versus sort of the Michigan wind there versus say in Oklahoma or Kansas, that's a completely different beast. Um, and so once your brain gets used to thinking in terms of angles or thinking in terms of drift of in angles, uh, mills or an MOA. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it was an easy sport to learn from that aspect, but, um, realistically, um, I think anybody who wants to get into the sport really can just grab, you know, their rifle, uh, go find a local club match or, you know, go to their local range and, and try to learn how to hit targets with fewer shots, uh, from the get go instead of just putting it on a bench or going prone and just, you know, banging away at the same target. Try to vary it up a little, and that's basically PRS. Shoot multiple targets from multiple positions.
0: So, I, I've i been to a couple of matches, um, and I, like I said, I've, I've seen you shoot as well. Um, you get in squads, so there's a group of, you know, five or
2: six shooters? Uh, yeah, it's five, between five and 15. Uh, depending on the number of shooters and the number of stages they're running. But generally speaking, you're around 10, 10 to 12 people per per squad, as it's called. Um, each squad will start on a given stage. So generally, like say a two-day match or even a one-day match, you'll shoot about 10, day, 10 stages or so per day. So you'll you'll be assigned, say, squad one will start on stage one. And our 10 shooters will go through a small brief. Hey, you have to shoot target A at 100, target two at 300, 400, 500, 600, five targets, five positions. Um, They'll give you about two minutes uh, to shoot the stage. And at the end, you'll get a time call and they count up how many you hit and how many you missed. And, you know, the goal is to hit every single one. So you have two minutes or sometimes a little less. Most of ours are around 90 seconds um, to complete the stage. And after you're done, you'll cycle back to your gear. Somebody else shoots and you get enough time to start prepping for the next stage. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool way to shoot. You get to meet a lot of new people and um, it it keeps you engaged the whole time. That's for sure.
0: So, and so each of the stages is set up differently. Sometimes you're shooting off of a barricade. Sometimes you're climbing into a car, um, up on some rocks.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen some crazy ones. Yeah, you're not wrong. The, uh, the match directors uh, definitely definitely get creative with positions. Uh, you know, Matt Steiner had a really unique one uh, at the match at Southington that was uh, some railroad ties in a geometry pattern that I haven't seen before. It's sort of <laughs> Four squares and two of them leaning up against one another, and then you couldn't touch the ground. Um, so it was a little bit of a balancing act. I'm probably not doing it justice over the phone to describe it, but... Uh, needless to say, it was, it was a unique position and that is really kind of the name of the sport. It's not shooting off of your belly all the time. It's shooting, you know, or off of a bench. It's sort of what you would call non-traditional positions, shooting off of a cattle gate or a fence post or a fallen tree or a rock or all of the above all at the same time, the back of a, a car hood or through a door jam on a car. Um, really it's trying to simulate things you might encounter, you know, while hunting, um, or things that are just not ordinary or typical shooting positions, like prone or like a bench. So, and from that, uh, it spawned, you know, how far can you hit? I think, you know, I got to say, I think it was, you know, George Gardner and Um, A lot of the guys in the early 2000s, and I think, you know, going back, I don't know, forgive me, I don't know all the history on the sport. Uh, I've heard it a few times, but um, there were, uh, I think, Jacob Bynum down at Rifles Only and George Gardner and a couple of other guys who were all in a small precision community back in the early 2000s, late 90s. Started this concept of shooting a lot of targets, kind of non-traditionally. You know, who can shoot the most, and and that slowly but surely evolved into the sport that we know today, that we call Precision Rifle Series or PRS.
0: That that's I'll have to look up some history on that. I didn't realize that it was that new. Um, I mean, that seems like I guess the '90s is farther away than I want to think it is. But
2: yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> makes me a little older that's than I want to think yeah, about. Think the same thing. <laughs> Um, so, have you done you did some F class shooting, right?
2: I did. Yeah, so in the, oh geez, I'm trying to recall dates, but uh, I believe it was to somewhere around two thousand ten give or take, um I, I live here, you know, in Cedar Springs. And obviously Applied Ballistics is also here in Cedar Springs. And just kind of a funny story, but I, uh, it was Christmas, I want to say Christmas, the day after Christmas or just before New Year, I had really, I'd really gotten into long-range shooting for the first time about a year prior. And I heard of these books called uh, you know, Applied Ballistics, you know, long-range, I think it's long, what's the first one? Applied Ballistics, uh, long-range long range solutions or solutions. Yeah, there you go. Um, and I, had, I went online and I found the website and, oh, I can buy these books. Very cool. Bought them. And the next morning, no, no, it wasn't even the next morning, it was like within two hours or three hours, um, I get a knock at the door and I'm still in my pajamas, you know, kind of lounging after the holiday. And you know, there's this guy standing at my door with a package, and I'm like, okay, I didn't order anything. At least I'm not thinking I'm going to get books ten minutes later. And sure <laughs> enough, it was uh, Bill Litz actually hand delivered them, signed by Brian. And hey, <laughs> here's your books. I mean, it was it was a little bit eerie because I had no idea that I was going to be getting them just two hours after I ordered them. That's but yeah, uh, a be great story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that was truly. Uh, and Bill introduced me. He's like, hey, you know, I, I welcome to the area. Thank here's your books and I'm like thanks and um, from that he just you know cordially and casually invited me to come up and meet the F class team up at the marksmanship training center and I had just so happened to also be a member there uh, working with Claire Ward and um, his and his team on some other things computer related and so as, as a member there mentioned that to him and I ended up going up north to the marksmanship training center to shoot for the first time. With you know, a real long range with a team, if you will, um, with Brian, and really just practiced, but got to pull targets for Brian while he shot. I want to say it was a, it was a 29, uh, eight or nine X in practice, and he had just missed cutting the ten ring with one shot, and it was. I remember how fast he did it, and it just was in awe, going, well, he was quarter inch from breaking a world record in practice. Uh, I mean, just incredible to see uh, how fast and how consistent those shots were. Um, and then, you know, from there, just I think I shot one match in F class and, and just sort of got away from that sport, uh, just that style of shooting, just because I really enjoyed the UKD or unknown distance style shooting a little bit more uh, than, say, fixed distance shooting.
0: Fair enough. And, you know, Mitch started out with some F class, too, and then he progressed to ELR shooting. Um,
2: yeah, yep. Yeah. It seems <laughs> yeah, like a really yeah. good starting point, for, but Yeah.
1: Yeah, so you you started at at MTC. I started at uh, – I just kind of heard about it and went up to Grayling there, and they were still holding matches at Grayling. And um, just uh, me and my dad went up there and started asking questions, and, you know, Brian just happened to be there. So I started talking to Brian, asking him some questions, and uh, that's how I kind of got introduced to it.
2: Yeah. And, Mitch, didn't you win the – was it the King of of One Mile or King of Two Mile – like your rookie season down in Mexico, is that right?
1: Yeah, 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 New Mexico. We shot uh, Mexico. the King of Two yep. Miles in 2016, and uh, yep, ended up uh, winning that match. And I've I've placed really well in it, um, all but the one year there since. So been keeping that going. But yeah, we Brian and I started shooting ELR in 2016, and that's when we did that match, and things went pretty well.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the calibers involved in ELR definitely make, uh, you know, what we do in the PRS seem seem pretty tame by comparison. Um, what, what's your – your loads are what? Like 300 to 500 grains depending on the caliber? Your projectiles, uh, yeah. I should say? Yeah,
1: yeah, the bullets. So, like, uh, 330 – yeah, I've been shooting a lot of three thirty eight lately, and, you know, I've been shooting the 300-grain burger hybrids. Um, but whenever I was shooting three seventy fives, we were shooting – 400 or 407 grain bullets. So So relate relate that. A pound of powder doesn't go very far at my house.
2: (laughs) No, it wouldn't.
0: So Francis, relate that to a PRS for me.
2: So so the the typical, um, you know, kind of precision rifle PRS match gun is going to be uh, probably a six millimeter of some sort, whether it's a 243, which is... Uh, not super common now, but I'd say that one of the more common calibers is something called a 6BR, 6BRA. Um, you also have the, the new 6GT uh, by George and Hornaday. Um, and then moving up a little, the 6XC, uh, which is kind of close to a six millimeter Creedmoor. Um, they all hold, you know, between 30 and 35 grains of Vargit or about 35 to 40 some grains of low 40s of 4 through 50. So we we have to 110 meter or 110 grain, uh, uh, depending on the person between 2,800 and 3,000 feet a second, um, which is, you know, not slow, not fast, kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, but I know the, the ELR guys are, well, I mean, you can, you can tell, I think you're shooting in that 3,000 to 3,100 range with, you know, triple that projectile weight. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, just to kind of back up what you said, um, when we were doing the mobile lab there in Ohio, uh, it was by far six millimeter cartridges, uh, six millimeter bullets that we were testing for guys. And um, I mean, there was, you know, there was a few six fives. Um, I was actually kind of impressed with the number of 224s that were there. Um, not that many people competed with them, but they had them out. But like you were saying, the six millimeters were by far the, the largest
2: showing.
0: So explain to me the difference between a six and a six five.
2: The, the bullet itself, the major diameter of the 6 millimeter bullets is uh, 6 millimeters or .243, plus or minus a few thousandths. Um, the 6.5 is going to be uh, 260, 264 uh, thousandths of an inch, or uh, just over a quarter of an inch in diameter. So, slightly larger in diameter, a little bit heavier, um, which, you know, the main reason for choosing one over the other... Um, is realistically just a little bit of recoil management on the PRS side. You know, when I first started, I shot m- almost all of last season with a six point, with a six five Creedmoor, um, which is just a, it's a moderately, it's kind of ubiquitous as the new three oh eight. If you want to think of it that way, it's it's an easy caliber to tune. Uh, ammo is readily available, and it's inherently very precise, especially with modern techniques for reloading. Uh, factory ammo is extremely good from both Hornaday and and Berger. Um, and I think applied ballistics had a large part to do with a lot of that initial um, initial testing and uh, adoption from the burger side. Um, but basically, it gives you the ability to have lower recoil with a six millimeter and a little bit faster projectile. So you get a little bit less wind at medium to mid range, uh, medium long range. As uh, Once you get past about 1100, most 6.5s are going to start to do a little bit better. Um, ballistically, in terms of wind drift, but it all depends on you know speed out of the muzzle. How fast is it going, and how good of a BC do you have on that bullet? So all else equal, a lot of the six mils work better because we shoot predominantly from say 300 to 1,000. Our average shot being probably 600 to 700 yards. Um, having that little bit of extra speed and a little bit lower recoil lets us see the bullet downrange as it's traveling and impact on the target. So we can make really minor adjustments to our holds each and every shot. Um, if we if when I was shooting my six five, I noticed it was you know at the time I didn't notice I hadn't shot a six millimeter, but it was felt easy to see recoil, a uh, see trace and see impact on target and manage recoil. And then I went to a six millimeter and my I mean literally blew my mind at how easy it was to shoot a six millimeter cartridge compared to even a six five. So and I think you know, I'm sure Mitch and ELR guys, you know, have that similar kind of trade-off. You have to pick whether you want super heavy, hard recoil, um, with a little bit slower moving projectile, or whether you want something that's easier to manage on recoil and more consistent possibly through the, through the shot and the shot pulse. Um, but with, you know, maybe a little bit lower BC, but higher muzzle velocity. So
0: Mitch, how does that, how does that relate to ELR shooting?
1: Yeah, it's really comparable. I mean, Pretty much what all of the, the shooting disciplines are is it's uh you know it's a battle with physics right so we're all trying to minimize our our sources of error and sources of uh, variation so you know a, a larger gun um, larger caliber more performance um, like what we see in the lab a lot of times is that that configuration will tend to have more variation either in velocity or sometimes BC variation, uh, depending on the situation when you start getting up into ELR stuff with solid bullets. Um, you know, you've got different matches with different weight limits, PRS stuff. That's probably relatively standardized. ELR seems to still be trying to kind of find their way on that. So it's, you know, it's a a game of figuring out how much you can do, um, while at the same time minimizing your, your variations because, Know if you're a good wind reader, you don't need to minimize your wind error as much. You might have to try to minimize your the error in your load more, or if you are really bad at wind, you need more performance in the wind, so you're going to run a bigger uh, cartridge that you may not be able to shoot quite as accurately and might have a little bit more variation. So, I mean, the the whole name of the game here, regardless of what shooting sport you're in, is um, we're trying to kind of push that envelope and get equipment that keeps reducing our variation while increasing our performance. And uh, I mean, that's at the end of the day. That's what we're all trying to do. <laughs>
0: so something else um, that I wanted to talk about um, these PRS matches I see, um, there's so many accessories. <laughs> 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 like it, you'd think it was a really um, serious girl sport with all the doodads. um <laughs> there's a bag for this and there's a bag for that and you can put a rail on your bag and you there's just a lot um tell me some of the um some of your your accessories some of the things that you find essential for these matches
2: oh that's a good question uh you know it's if if you had asked me that question a year ago Um, around the same time, I would have told you this bag for that situation, this bag for that situation, and this piece of gear for this. Um, but you know, to kind of give you the, the quick version, I'm, I'm more and more coming down to one bag, one rifle. Um, and then also one other piece of equipment called the area 419 rail changer X. Um, but basically the Armageddon gear line Uh, exclusively. It's uh, Tom Fuller's gear. Uh, He's out of Georgia. Um, You know, all PRS is simply the matter of how do you get stable on non-uniform objects, Uh, whether it's a, a table or a bench or a barrel or a log or a rail or a cinder block. There's always some sort of surface that you have to rest your rifle on. And the less your reticle moves while you're in position trying to break a shot, the more accurate you'll be. And over the course of the last just about two years, um, you know. I've gone through a few different bags. You know, I've had everything from a wee bag fortune cookie uh, to an OG game changer to a wax game changer uh, to a few, several others um, pint size uh, game changer. But the one that I'm on now that I've been beyond enamored with after testing, uh, it's it's incredibly stable. It's almost. <laughs> It's hard to put it into words, you know, I think to the average shooter, uh, are they going to see a difference between bag to bag? Maybe a little, but to the trained guy and to the shooter who's put you know, thousands of thousands of rounds downrange, you know, in a given couple of weeks or a month, um, you do absolutely notice a difference. So I switched to one called the Schmedium by Armageddon gear, and it's got a special sand on the inside. It's got a, you know, a kind of a cotton-based, uh, flexible material on the outside. And when that bag goes onto an object, it immediately conforms. You give it two quick settles with your rifle and it is hands down the most stable bag I've ever put my rifle on. Um, I mean, so much so that, you know, the the match at Southington, there was, we had to shoot off of those railroad ties that I was mentioning kind of in a weird semi seated, not style position. I think anybody who was there understands what I mean by that. It was a really awkward position to shoot from. Uh, but I just put, my schmedium it's kind of a unique name but to put the schmedium up on the top of the rail and and fired it uh, kind of like i would any other barricade and i was you know i cleaned the stage at six a little over 600 700 800 900 and a thousand yard target um you know anything i think they were around like 10 inch 8 to 10 inches to start and out to about um a 20 18 or 20 inch target at the far at a thousand yards and then the very last shot after the match was done, the RO gave me, uh, said, Hey, there's a paint can up, at the thousand yard berm on top of the target you just shot, go ahead and send one round. So I got back in behind the rifle and was, it's so stable. I was able to hold half of a 10th and see the difference and just hold it absolutely dead still more, literally more stable than I would prone. Um, so, you know, when it comes to in my game now, I have literally simplified my entire shot process down to one bag one rifle and one plate. Um, and the plate, to give you kind of a background, it's, it's basically something that allows you to distribute the force uh, and drive your rifle a little bit more effectively. So, you know, the RCX is designed to clamp onto the rifle and help you drive the rifle um, and also clamp it to tripods or bipods underneath with an arc lock rail uh, and basically give you the ability to spread force over a large surface. Um, when you put your bag down on some object, uh, the, the plate then allows you to guide the rifle a little bit more cleanly, let it recoil more front to back. Um, you know, In the AF-Class world, they use uh, special rear bags uh, and special bipods that allow the rifle to recoil just about perfectly straight every single time. And we really want to do much the same thing in PRS. It's just we're doing it uh, instead of off of a bipod and three points of contact, we're generally doing it off of one on a bag. So you know, the game, the game changer is probably the most ubiquitous – bag available to date um but there's a ton of other gear the rail changer by our by 419 was the precursor to the rail changer x um there's uh, i think dave preston uh, and gray ops they have their own uh plate as well um i'm trying to remember i think it's called the gray ops mini plate or amp plate series uh also a really cool he just came out with a new design it's pretty cool as well uh it has some cool weights that you can put in it but you know the bottom line on gear is there are a lot of accessories and options out there. They're all designed to to solve a specific challenge, and some do it really well. Some, you know, maybe arguably not so well. But I think for the most part, you just want to find equipment that helps you be more stable. All things being equal, if you can find a really good rear bag and or you know rifle rest bag, uh, you're going to hit a lot of targets as long as you know you're dope in wind.
0: One And one of the things I want to say um, for anyone who might be interested in starting or just starting out, one of the things that is universal, I don't care which form of shooting you're doing, whether it's F-Class, PRS, ELR, one thing I have to say about shooters is if you ask them to use or try or borrow Every one of them is so friendly and so willing to um, let you try their stuff. And yeah, th- that's, that's something that is universal across every shooting platform that I have, you know, witnessed. And, and that's just says something about the kind of people that are in, in shooting. They're just some good folks.
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, you know, and then multiply that by 10. I mean, there's virtually no one I've met in this sport that's not willing to say, oh man, your gear is breaking or your, um, I watched someone pull the bolt on their rifle and let someone shoot the bolt out of their rifle in another rifle after confirming everything seemed to headspace properly, uh, because the other person's bolt had gone down. And I mean, that's a, when you think about the amount of trust that it takes to hand part of your competition rifle to another person to let them shoot it so they can finish the match that's a that means there's a lot of trust involved and I think you know we all see our you know our fellow competitors you know we aren't competing against one another while we are we're also competing against ourselves and I think we all have this vested interest in helping see new shooters come into the sport be successful we also want to see our fellow competitors be as successful as we are because, candidly, I think we all want to shoot against the best competition we can so that we can all get better and we can all have a ton of fun but while also pushing each other to be the best versions of ourselves both on field and off the field.
0: I absolutely agree with that. Um, it's hands down some of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, shooters are great. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about what the rest of your season looks like. I know... Um, We talked in Ohio when we saw you, um, what was that, two weeks ago at the Sandstorm, Vortex Sandstorm Sandstorm match, about your crazy schedule that you have coming up. So how many matches in your season do you have?
2: Oh, I used to have a count. I know just before, you know, March when, you know, all the craziness started happening. I want to say it was around 16 to 20 um, planned matches, but um, I believe— it's going to end up being right around 15 to 16, if if my math is right. So you know, we just got I just got back from uh, Kansas at Conway Lead Distributors, uh, where Derek Love put on an absolutely amazing match. It was crazy strong winds at about six o'clock on average. So it was everything from you know, to anybody who knows wind. It's anything from five o'clock, which means back coming from your back right, uh, to about seven o'clock coming from your back left at about 15 miles an hour, up to 20, and it would lull down to about 6. And anybody familiar with wind, you know, if you're going from 6 to 20 miles an hour, going from, you know, almost a full 15, 30 degrees uh, across the rear of you, that's a really tricky condition to shoot in. And, um, you yeah, know, that match was incredibly fun, incredibly challenging, and uh, that was that was a super cool one. Um, this week, i heading out toward this weekend, I'm heading out to Utah for a match, um put on by george and hornaday no i think it's called the hornaday prc um, which is going to be in, the, in a ranch out in utah so we shoot there for two days and they come back and the following weekend i'll be in west virginia for drew walter's match which is called war rifles and it's i believe it's at peacemaker um again i'm drawing blanks on the exact but i'm pretty sure it's at peacemaker this season again first time shooting there um, then I'm back at home for one weekend to run a 22 match in a friend's wedding. Then the following weekend, they go to Wisconsin for the barrel maker classic out in the, the heart of all the barrels being made across the country There, uh <laughs> Bart line out there, Criterion's out there. Uh, I forget all of them, I, I, but I know there's a, I think six or eight different barrel makers out there. You guys would probably know better than me. Um, but yeah, then from there,
0: uh, <laughs> it's crazy how that happened.
2: Yeah, they all ended up right outside of Milwaukee and, and within that sort of hour and a half of Milwaukee.
0: I'm sure there's probably some kind of logical reason for that. Mitch probably knows.
1: Yeah, not to detract from his story, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's a matter of, you know, people making barrels and then, you know, leaving that company and starting their own. And, you know, before you know it, you've got six, seven barrel makers in one area. You know, oh. cause people don't move very far away. Yeah roots being what they are makes sense not to mention that but i think some of them you know a lot of them have uh this is just a total hypothesis but um you know rifling machines are kind of a specialized thing you know bartland has their own uh, cnc ones but um you know it's possible there was you know rifling you know war era like world war ii era rifling machines and stuff that were repurposed to barrel manufacturers and stuff in that area it's hard to say but i think uh, obviously they're related through through some mechanism
0: Ah, huh, interesting. Yeah. Sidebar. <laughs> um so so you do these between 16 and 20-ish matches for a season and then there's so you're accumulating a score. Yeah. Through the whole season and then there's a ranking at the end.
2: Yeah, you get a so the the PRS series ranks you on your best three scores from the season um they have something called a qualifier score which just means it's it's a match that's designated you've got to shoot a qualifier and at least uh, so at least one qualifier and then two or three as many other regular matches as you want and you will take your best three scores two regular and at least one qualifier and then that those combined out of say 100 points uh, will give you your total points up to about 300 uh, being a perfect season. I know Dave Preston last year going into the finale he had 300. He had won three matches. I believe he had a perfect score. So then in the finale, you shoot the finale with two times your finale point score. So, you know, whatever you end up with, you know, say zero to 100, you end up with double that. So you can make up some ground on competitors near you. If you're trying to go up a little, you know, for every point you beat them by, you're effectively beating them by two. So you're at the end of the season. It's worth a total value of 500, but through your normal season, it's three hundred to get just prior to the finale, and that'll tell you whether or not you make it into the finale itself. Um, and I, I can't—I don't recall the exact number, but I believe it's the top hundred and fifty, approximately top hundred and fifty shooters, uh, hundred to hundred and fifty across the the U.S. and Canada. Um, and then they open that up. Also, they have a—I think it's Australia, New Zealand has their own um, ranking as well as South Africa, and could be missing one more, but I know that those two countries at least do have their own. And those, those also, those people also get invited in the top five from each of those countries, if I'm not mistaken, are invited in to shoot the, the national or well, technically world finale. So,
0: well, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. So are you grouped into like, is there a, a region of shooters that you compete against? And then the top three from there are mixed in with the other regions
2: Yeah. So there's two different series or actually three now within the precision rifle series. There is a local or regional series. So for instance, I shoot locally with the MPRC or Michigan precision rifle steel challenge, um, which is the Michigan PRS chapter, if you will. Uh, We have our own local one day matches. There's going to be four or five throughout the course of the season. You'll shoot those and you'll have your own finale for Michigan. On top of that, those points will count towards the regional series, which is the, the call it the most basic level of PRS competition, where in the Midwest, which I believe is eight or nine states now, um, kind of the Michigan, Indiana, let's see, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, and maybe the Dakotas are all part of the the quote unquote Midwest. So uh, you'll also keeps track of your best, top, your top three scores, and out of 300 points, the top 100, 150 shooters will all go to a finale for the Midwest and do the exact same thing we would do at the national level: compete against each other, and whoever comes out top at that match, add all the points up. Whoever has the most out of 500 wins the overall for the season. Which um, I got really lucky last year and, and shot well and ended up winning the uh, the Midwest. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a cool series to be in because it is one day, so it's a lot more easy to manage your time, you know, go in, shoot your locals, and then you know, shoot a finale uh, somewhere in the Midwest.
0: Okay, let me rewind really quick, because did you just say you got lucky and you won number one? <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's not luck. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think anybody in this sport would ever say that it's pure skill um, all the time. It's It's definitely a combination of luck and being in the right place at the right time, And granted, you do have to make a lot of really, uh, you know, intelligent and intuitive calls to say is that feels like it's doing this. There is a lot of luck involved at times. And, you know, a shot or two here or there, a match can mean the difference between first and fifteenth. Um, so out of, you know, say one day match, you know, two points can mean as many as four or five places, depending on where you're shooting and who you're shooting against. Um, and a two day match, Uh, I know just recently, uh, you know, at Conway, I think if I remember correctly, other than the top two shooters or top three, four shooters, um, there was a span of about three points that had 10 places. Uh, Same thing at the the K&M match we had this spring. I mean, it was an extremely tight match where just one shot or two shots or even three shots over the course of two days, hit or miss, will make the difference between you finishing 50th and 25th. Wow. Depends a little on the match, but...
0: In PRS shooting, it's pretty much a, a a one shooter. You don't have a spotter. You don't have anything like that, right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, you're shooting. You know, you're shooting you against the obstacles and the wind and the targets you have in front of you. So it's kind of the match director trying to create a a series of targets that are challenging to acquire, and they're challenging either your speed to go from point A to point B to point C to move to different positions. Um, or they're challenging the positions you're on being very wobbly and difficult to build a stable position. Sometimes they're challenging you with how you manipulate your rifle, meaning you're shooting close, then you're shooting far, then you're shooting close again, and then far. Or it's pure target and pure precision, meaning um, how small of a, a group can you place on smaller and smaller targets, something like a TYL rack. So, so the answer is, yeah, they're they're definitely challenging you you personally, not as a group. Um, it's not a sport where you have anybody telling you what to do on the clock or where your misses are. You're expected to take a shot, see where your bullet landed, or how specifically where on the target it hits, which is arguably the most challenging part about this sport. You know, did I hit right of center, uh, just right an inch, or you know, a tenth of a mill, or was it two, three tenths right on the right edge of the target? And then trying to adjust for your next shot or your next distance to make a smart, educated guess on where your next shot will be based on what you've done through that point on the stage. Um, so yeah, you're, it's you versus the obstacles versus your, your targets and your knowledge of your weapon.
0: Okay. And when you're at a stage, you can only send 10 rounds or you,
2: you can't keep, shooting until you hit, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. You have a limit, you know, in most 99% of cases that's you have, you know, eight to 12 rounds, it's a designated round count or fixed round count. So they'll tell you how many you're going to shoot, but there are some occasions where they'll throw in an unlimited round stage. But uh, when we say unlimited, it just means good luck. If you're shooting unlimited number, I mean, you're only going to have time to send 15, maybe 16, but you really wouldn't need to or want to. In most cases, when they say that, it's because there's another challenge involved that it's going arbitra- to it's going to limit your number of rounds you can send because the stage is that difficult.
0: Okay. Mitch,
2: but yeah, more often than not it's 10 to 12.
0: Okay. So Mitch, tell me, have you shot an ELR match where you don't get a spotter?
1: Um No, I'm pretty oh, so yes. The the Night Force ELR match, um you don't get a spotter. Um, that's that's on your own. That's actually kind of a hybrid match between more of a PRS shooting and an uh, uh, ELR format. I would say it's kind of like a, it's almost like a PRS formatted match in the way that the the stages are done and the number of stages and how you shoot the match. But um, the way you actually lay down and shoot your, it's you know it's all prone on the ground. It's called more of like a field match. But in that match. Um, we don't, we didn't get spotters.
0: Okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's interesting. So in the ELR part of it, you have spotters because of the distance mostly, right?
1: Yeah. So like, uh, like Francis was just saying there, you know, a big part of hitting targets. And this is again, something that goes for, I guess I'm not gonna say all disciplines because bench press shooters and F class don't really have this issue, but, um, with ELR and, and PRS particularly is, when you miss a target being able to identify that miss and make a correction that puts you on target because those second round hits are really important. So uh, with ELR, it's even more of an issue because at these extended ranges you know, we're losing a lot of velocity and energy. It's hard to see the disturbances in the ground. Um, And so, I mean in the absence of spotters, there would be just far less hits. I mean, purely for that reason, not even for help making wind calls and everything else. Just, you know, the number of times that the shooter doesn't see the shot versus when the spotter does or vice versa. Um, I would say just being able to spot those misses and then get back on target and actually get some hits. um, That's where a spotter is really needed in the ELR game. And it's usually a slow enough pace that a spotter can be helpful, right? Because like in a PRS match, even if you had a spotter, things are very quick and dynamic. You probably would be slower and do worse if you had to try to incorporate a spotter into a stage. Yeah, I would agree with that.
0: In an ELR match, is there's a time limit, right?
1: Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much every shooting match is going to have a time limit just so that they can actually keep things on schedule and so get a match done. You're,
0: you're not just laying there all day trying to <laughs> figure out what no, you're doing.
1: No, it's there. Yeah. There's longer time limits. Like the night force match had, uh, three minutes per stage Okay, you're shooting up to four targets and you've got three minutes transitioning targets and whatnot in the prone, having to make bipod adjustments. And then uh, like the key of two miles, you've got nine minutes or a similar number of targets, but you're, you know, again, you're, tra- you're transitioning a big heavy rifle through multiple targets and stages. So, I mean, naturally that it just takes more time, but uh, the, the ELR matches are definitely slower paced.
0: So one other thing I wanted to um, just touch base on with you, Francis, is um, the Applied Ballistics Mobile Lab. Yeah. We were able to um, come out to the Vortex match, and you were there, and you were able to go through the process of getting a PDM for your rifle that you were shooting at the match. Um, I, from a shooter's aspect, um, I just would like to hear what, what, what the process, how that worked out for you.
2: Sure. Um, well, and, and again, thank you for coming out because it was awesome to have that information, um, you know, available to us for Sunday's shoot. Um, you know, it's, it's probably one of the simplest processes that you, you don't know exists in, in the sport. And I think, you know, between the AB team for in creating that concept of how do we bring this to more shooters? Um, I was, you know, as soon as I learned about it, I think, I don't know, a year ago, maybe I had heard that there was some, um, opportunity to start moving that direction i was thrilled and trying to figure out how i could uh, try it out um last season you gave me one from my state five um that i ended up doing up north with brian and uh then this season at southington i was able to use it with my 6xc and it was really cool you shoot 10 rounds just from a bench you know basically into a dirt berm or on a target and you know when you're all done you know, I don't know what does that take. Sixty seconds uh, is sixty seconds to a minute, thirty, two minutes maybe. You're done, and you, they compile the data, and I get a little printout, which was neat to see my average drag across all ten shots, my SD, the BC, effective BC of my bullet at different ranges or different variation of ranges. And all said and done, I tested two different rifles with the same load and found them both to have the same BC, but one had a higher variation of BC which is a really interesting uh, find when you think about it from a very technical level. If I have two different barrels and one of them is putting out a little bit better variation, a little bit better or less variation of BC, I should expect that that barrel will perform a little bit better at distance as I start to shoot for tighter and tighter vertical spread. The lower variation will ultimately win, assuming they both have the same precision at some distance. And that's, I know that that actually is the case. I mean, if you shot these barrels both to distance and the one that I'm shooting currently has about 1500 rounds on it now. Um, and at Saturday when I was shooting it, my CDM, which is the standard model that I use in my Kestrel 5,700 from with AB, um, was just about spot on. I noticed it was trending right around a 10th high over the course of day one, just a little over a 10th at some. So I was kind of taking that off of my readout Sunday Um, you had pushed all of the PDMs out and I made a quick, uh, secondary profile, pulled it over to my Kestrel and I ran that on Sunday. When I checked the two side by side, I noticed, yep, it pulled the 10th out that I had had from the day before. I'm like, I'm going to run this because it matches up with everything I saw yesterday. And sure enough, I mean, it was so good, uh, that, that, that paint can at a thousand six, um, literally drilled that absolute dead center top to bottom on the paint can, dead vertical in the middle of the paint can and absolutely dead left to right. And both solutions were called, I I can't even say more perfectly than perfect. It was maybe a quarter of an inch off left, right, up, down, uh, from absolute center of that paint can. So that's, that's unbelievable to me.
0: So I like, I like that, that you say all those things and you kind of nerd out about the numbers like we do. Um, it's, it's fun to know that that kind of stuff is exciting on the other side of it. <laughs>
2: um, it's super cool. And I have, you know, it takes a lot to understand your rifle. A lot of people, when I was younger and just getting into long range shooting in general, just shooting off my belly and how many times can I hit the same target? I didn't really think much. If it hit, it hit. If it didn't, it didn't. And I was disappointed, but I wasn't able to say, hey, I need to come up uh, a 10th or up, you know, half a minute. I didn't know the difference. Now I can tell you, I absolutely can see a difference trending from say 300 to 700 to a thousand, what the rifle is doing while shooting on a stage. And you have to be able to capture that. And arguably the most important piece of equipment I have besides my rifle and optic dialing the way I expect them to dial and my load doing well is my Kestrel. It's the only other piece of equipment that I have to have with me regardless in order to be able to perform and take any shot that I need. It tells me exactly where I need to be in a given environment, at a different altitude, in a different location, with you know, latitudes, if I'm down in Tennessee or over in Oklahoma or Utah, where I'm going to be up in, at higher elevations, uh, quite literally, I, the amount of math that it takes to get to some of those solutions if you're unaccustomed, uh, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. And I think that that was probably the biggest piece of event equipment that would have taken me to an even further level, uh, you know, further, faster years ago had I known that that existed. And so if there was any advice I could give to a new shooter who's trying to get into PRS or even just trying to learn long-range shooting uh, at a a faster clip than the average bear, so to speak, I would say go invest in something with Applied Ballistics as a Kestrel sports solution, or I think you also have the Garmin series now that has it preloaded. There's even some really cool SIG products that have solvers built into them. And what they're really going to do is just take a lot of the guesswork out of getting on target. You still have to put in the hours to understand your load, but being able to take an environmental reading and say, hey, at this reading with this speed and this bullet, you should be coming up 4.1 mils. It, that ability is second to none. And I mean, I can't, I don't think I would be where I would be if I didn't have that tool. Uh, I'm, at least I wouldn't be able to do it with his, uh, with it without a lot more hours involved. <laughs>
0: So um, I just want to add a little um, tidbit for anyone who's listening um, that has a Kestrel or is thinking about getting one or even um, a Garmin or something else that has the AB Solver in it. Um, But Kestrel specifically, because they have some really excellent videos um, that walk you through using it um, on their YouTube and their Facebook pages. And they've really like with the whole coronacation, um, they really stepped up their game on putting some, some, some of that information out for, for shooters. And I've been watching it and that's one of the things I'm working on learning is how to use my Kestrel better. But, um, so that's just a little, yeah, a little side nugget there for everybody.
2: And if I could, I'm going to put out a public service announcement for those listening who are new to Kestrels or thinking that, you know, the solver is not putting out accurate solutions. I mean, uh, having done this now for years, uh, multiple years, I think, I think I've think i had a Kestrel now for about four years, three or four years. Um, they, if it's not coming up with the right solution, it's 99.99999% of the time, it's something in your inputs. There's something that's not translated correctly into the solver, and it's giving you, you know, and, and there's an old saying in computer program: it's garbage in, garbage out. So if your inputs aren't correct, and it's sometimes kind of hard to navigate what inputs mean what. And that's not because of anything other than just the lingo that's involved in shooting can sometimes slip past you. It did to me. I mean, I remember, I can't even tell you how many times on my phone I had plugged in something, looked for a solution, and I had forgot to set my altitude properly or had punched in an extra zero. So instead of being at a thousand, I showed I was at 10,000 feet. Um, (laughs) Those little details matter A lot when you're trying to calculate how to how to elevate your scope or how much to dial to get your scope to put the bullet on target so when in doubt if i can make any suggestions you know double triple and then quadruple check your settings over and over again if you're having trouble and if that you know find somebody at your local club uh, or facebook if you have a facebook group for your precision rifle series or something reach out to someone and ask um, to take screenshots of your data and send it to somebody they're going to find it they're going to help you solve it and it will work. It absolutely gets you on target more often than it puts you um, anywhere near off. I, I, I can count on the number of hand, fingers that I've got, how many times uh, my Kestrel has been wrong by more than a tenth or two tenths.
0: Right. I, I agree. It's nice to hear um, hear that as well, because we, we say that a lot as well. Um, it, it, if, if it's not working, it's because there's something that's not in there properly. Um. So we're we're hitting our um, our hour mark here, um, Mitch. Did you have anything else you wanted to ask or add?
1: Um, no, I think Francis covered it pretty well. Uh, the only thing I would add on that that last comment there is, uh, you know, sometimes you know we aren't perfect. You know, we manage this large database with data, and uh, you know, once in a while, some uh, data will get through that's not perfect, and uh, you know, someone will bring it to our attention, or we'll catch it, and we'll go back in and fix it. Um, we had one case with the, with the PDM at the last match that, uh, some data wasn't quite transposed correctly in and a shooter came to us. He's like, it just, this doesn't make quite as much sense as it should. And I went in and, you know, within five minutes I had it changed, but, um, you know, we do, we do our best to manage this, this database of, you know, a thousand bullets. Now, I think we've got over a thousand bullets And there's a hell of a lot of data points in there within those thousand bullets. And, um, so that kind of plays into that, that inputs thing. It it is possible for us to have an input in wrong once in a while. Um, it's rare. And, you know, when we catch them or someone brings them to our attention, we'll fix it. Um, so it's not out there for very much, but, um, I don't want to discourage people from reaching out to us if they think they found a, an error. And that's, what what I mean by that is after they've gone through everything Francis just said and we've established that everything in your Kestrel or in your app or whatever is correct, um, if there's something not quite right, um, you know people should feel free to reach out to us and we can we can look into stuff like that because we'll we'll go back through it we'll verify everything's right and then if um, you know if something's still not making sense we'll we'll look into the database side of it and just make sure we've got the data in there right. It's rare, happens once in a while. But it's it's part of keeping a large database and keeping everything working right. So I, I, I kind of wanted to add that to what Francis was saying.
0: That's, that's, a, that's a good point. And um, to that, I'll just add anyone who's listening, if you have um, one of those scenarios, you can always email us at the word support at appliedballisticsllc.com. And someone on the team will reach out to you and get you taken care of. So, Francis, I um, want to thank you very much for coming on and chatting with us tonight. Um, we, we we love chatting with you, even when we're not recording it. Um, <laughs> so we appreciate you <laughs> for <laughs> appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to um, seeing you in Wisconsin and hanging out a little bit.
2: Yeah, that'll be a ton of fun. I'm looking forward to it. If any of the new shooters out there listening or anybody... Uh, can get out and, and come check out your first match. It would be a really cool one to see. Even if you just come out, they have a, a cool winery. Shout out to Ken uh, Ken Wheeler and Nate Whitehead for directing that match. But they have a winery on site, so after you're done shooting, you can enjoy some cool food, some music, and, and a beer or two, uh, or wine. And uh, it's a ton of fun to hang out. So we generally camp over, over the weekend, and, and I'll just chit-chat and, and shoot a little. So.
0: That's awesome. I don't know how I missed the winery part of this. I'm glad we're <laughs> double glad. I'm double glad we're going now. Um, yeah. So Francis, um, I want just want to give you a chance to give a shout out to your, I know you're a sponsored shooter and if you have any shout outs you wanted to give to your sponsors, uh, here's your chance.
2: You know, first and foremost, you know, shooting for team MBT. Um, I got the chance to apply last fall and uh, they accepted me, you know, around December Um, you know, modular driven technologies makes absolutely incredible chassis systems, you know, not only for precision rifle series style rifles, but for hunting rifles and your general kind of varmiter or all of the above Uh, And They also have a new series called the Oryx, which is uh, a different brand, but also owned by MDT. That's extremely affordable, super precise and really versatile. Um, on top of that, you know, they make the SkyPod and a lot of other accessories, um, my buddy, got to give a shout out to Chad Heckler. He's a really good buddy of mine, uh, lives over in the Howell area, and he actually has a company called 5 by 5 Precision that makes something called the Crush It Timer. Uh, along with spinning barrels and um, and having his own other full-time job, You know, the guy's absolutely amazing in his ability to multitask and, and just hammer targets. So he and I always go head-to-head. and But he makes something called the Crush It Timer that's been Truly, uh, it made a big difference in my ability to practice and also slow down. I had the opposite of a lot of shooters. I, I tend to go way too fast through a stage. Uh, and his timer has actually helped me manage my time on the clock and get way better. Uh, Area 419, I shot uh, with them in the second half of last season. I run their rifle, their barrels. They're my current barrelsmith, along with the RCX. They also make a, a recoil suppression system called the Maverick, it's a hybrid suppressor and muzzle brake it's absolutely incredible to stop you from flinching and, and just frankly not hurt your ears as much um awesome people uh john Addis, craig Arnston uh, Nate livingston they're all super dudes you give them a call if you need anything from gear go check out their website they've got a ton of stuff then the others impact precision actions um and take <coughs> Tate over precision best action in the in the game, if you ask me, is super smooth. Bartland barrels, um, if, I've never run anything but Bartline, so I don't have a lot of points other than they always hammer. Armageddon gear, Tom Fuller, literally an icon in the industry, is probably the most charismatic and, and just ultra nice person you'll, you'll meet in the sport. Super cool. Uh, Swanee's comp gear, again, Jeremy's funny. Um, Swanson, just salt of the earth has everything puts his heart on his sleeve to help any shooter for any watched him take his gun apart and hand him a scope so that a guy could finish a match. I mean, that's, it was a $4,000 scope. (laughs) So it was no, uh, it was no uh, little scope, but I mean, he just does anything and everything for anybody. Um, Swanee's got to go check them out. They're super cool place. Uh, RCBS. uh, I can't thank those, those guys enough, Uh, you know, their entire team. um, I was able to, I've been running RCBS products for a long time. I uh, was fortunate enough to win one of the Matchmasters, their new scale, at the end of last season, and those things are incredible. They they measure to uh, two t- two hundredths of a grain, so basically one kernel of powder, and they help me uh, make sure loads hit you know quarter inch precision at hundred yards, and you know sub ten inches at a thousand yards plus. So, uh, and then obviously, uh, most importantly, uh, at least for this for this call and discussion, you know, I can't thank you guys enough for being local and supportive of the industry. Um, I know I've known you for a long time, at least Brian for a long time. And, uh, you know, the, the advancements that applied ballistics, uh, and I actually, I would say the heart of why I wanted to be in ball- in shooting in general was reading those books, um, you know, going through Brian's book series helped me understand more about how to get a bullet from A to B and that it's not just point click and it should have hit my target on the center of my crosshair. There's so much more that goes into it and understanding those dynamics of what happens not only in your rifle, but the exterior ballistics happen from the muzzle to the target. They are the things that make the difference between feeling like you had a great day of shooting and just feeling ultra defeated. And sometimes, you know, getting your butt kicked by the wind and not having your data quite together. It's the greatest opportunities you have to learn. And frankly, those those books are the greatest way to learn what matters and what doesn't.
0: Well, that's nice. Thanks. Like I wrote them. Um, Brian says thanks.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks to Brian for writing them. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, um, again, we thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mitch. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Yep, no problem. Thanks for coming on.
0: All right. Until next time.